So I'm going to invite Dennis to come and give us our New Testament reading, which is James 1, verses 1 to 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. This is the word of the Lord. So it would be really helpful if you uh, turn to uh, James 1 in your Bibles. Uh, Remember that uh, I'm encouraging three things that we've got to remember. Uh, Oh, that's fallen apart. Three things that we've got to remember when we come to church. One is our Bibles. Two is our name tags when we get them. And three is the um, uh, food donation for the food pantry. So we've got to remember three things each uh, Sunday. I reckon we can manage that. So uh, this is the first of a nine-part series based on the book of James. And James is undoubtedly one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's a very practical guide to living the Christian life. And it's super challenging. The Bible Project describes James as a beautifully crafted punch in the guts for those who want to follow Jesus. Uh, the book is written by James. Actually, his name is more accurately translated Jacob. But to keep things simple, uh, we'll refer to him as James. Uh, James was one of Jesus's younger brothers, uh, not to be mistaken with James, the son of Zebedee, who's one of the uh, 12 disciples. Uh, prior to the resurrection, none of Jesus's brothers followed him. Uh, in fact, John 3, 5 explicitly says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. The family was very skeptical about Jesus's ministry and the claims that he was making about himself. Uh, Mark 3, 20 to 21 says this. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Jesus' family thought that he'd gone crazy, and I think that we can understand this, having uh, grown up with an older brother. I know that boys and uh, brothers especially uh, can be incredibly competitive. Uh, I have had physical fights over who gets to press the button at the pedestrian crossing, Uh, though not recently, I hasten to add. Uh, To be honest, if my brother had started claiming to be some kind of uh, Messiah, indeed if he'd claimed to be God, uh, I would have struggled with that big time. I wouldn't have uh, wanted to believe it, and I wouldn't have been able to believe it. So I think we can understand why Jesus' brothers were slow to come round to the reality of who he was and is. Uh, This is, in fact, another piece of evidence for the truth of the resurrection. It doesn't matter which century you were born in. If your older brother starts claiming to be God, 
uh, then you're going to need the strongest possible evidence, irrefutable evidence that that is true uh, before you're even going to consider that as a possibility. Well, James was presented with irrefutable evidence. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, For what I received I passed on to you as one of, as, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some has fallen, some have fallen asleep. In other words, you can still ask these people, and they will tell you that they've seen Jesus. Then he appears to James. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. So he appeared to James uh, specifically. It looks uh, like uh, probably individually as well. And like so many others, James went from being a total skeptic to being a believer. In fact, he went on to lead the Jerusalem church, the first ever church uh, made up of Messianic Jews, that is those uh, Jews who had decided to put their faith in Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but if I discovered beyond doubt that my brother was in fact God, I might be tempted to name drop you know, kind of slip it into the conversation. Oh, by by the way, I'm uh, Jesus' brother. (laughs) But look at the way James begins this letter. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. If I was James, I would have wanted to get it in straight straight at the start. James, brother, of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you need to listen to what I've got to say. I grew up with Jesus. Uh, I know him better than anyone. We're close. Uh, but James doesn't bother with any of that nonsense. He identifies himself as a servant of Christ. And this isn't like one of Paul's letters where he writes to a specific church about specific matters pertaining to that church. Uh, James is writing to the 12 tribes scattered across the nations. That's a very Jewish way of putting it, but uh, what he's saying is he's writing to the whole church, the worldwide church, which does, of course, include us. James begins by talking about trials. The Jerusalem church was familiar with trials. In James's time, uh, they experienced uh, a great famine, And when you consider that the vast majority of people in the ancient world earned their living from agriculture, uh, extreme famine always led to extreme poverty. Add to that the persecution of the Jerusalem church that we read about in the book of Acts, and we can see uh, that they were really doing it tough. And out of this context, James begins this letter with the most surprising statement. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. But it's that first bit. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, before we get to what this means, I think it's probably helpful um, to think about what it doesn't mean. Uh, There are three responses to this injunction to be joyful in the face of trials that I think are unhelpful and inappropriate. 
Uh, the first inappropriate response is to gloss over a bad situation. Uh, in other words, attempting to deny the reality of the situation. If we're heartbroken or grieving or we've see, received some terrible news about our health or we're at the end of our tether, we don't need to pretend that there's nothing wrong. We don't need to put on a spurious grin and listen to I'm walking on sunshine on repeat. It's okay to acknowledge that a trial is a trial. That's the first thing. The second inappropriate response is to long for trials or to go looking for them or to engineer them. Uh, There's a film called Happy Gilmore, which I'm not necessarily recommending, but Happy Gilmore is about this guy uh, who longs to be an ice hockey player. The problem is he's rubbish at ice hockey, but he finds out he's uh, he's really good at golf. Uh, anyway, there's this scene in the film where he goes into a baseball batting cage and he puts his money into the, into the machine and there's a, a machine there that fires baseballs at him. And obviously you're supposed to go in there with a helmet and a baseball bat and, uh, and practice your batting, but he doesn't have a helmet or a bat. He just stands there like that and lets the uh, baseballs hit him in the head. And every time one does, he says, yeah, that feels great. And what he's doing is he's trying to toughen himself up ahead of the forthcoming ice hockey season. He went looking for trials uh, because he perceived some kind of benefit. But that's a film. And it's a comedy. And the lead character is bordering on insanity. And so would we be if we went looking for trials? If you're not facing any trials right now, give thanks to God and try and find out what he wants you to do with this phase of your life. The third inappropriate response is insensitivity. Trying to tell someone that they ought to be joyful at a time when outward expressions of joy are simply not possible. When I spend time with people who are hurting or going through terribly difficult situations, I don't say, cheer up, this is part of your spiritual growth, you ought to be joyful, because I'd probably get punched in the face. I believe that peace and joy can run like a deep undercurrent in our lives, even in the midst of the most harrowing circumstances. But it's deeply inappropriate to try and force joy on someone uh, whom, for obvious reasons, simply isn't in that place. So what does James mean when he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Well, as I said before, it's a deep joy that comes from knowing whatever's happening in our lives God is still good. The gospel is still true. We are still redeemed and forgiven. And God's plan for us and for the whole of creation is still on track. And it's knowing that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. If we persevere, our relationship with God through Jesus Christ will become mature and complete. Or maybe better to say, it will become more mature and complete because we won't be the finished product until we meet Jesus face to face. What this means is that when we face trials, not only do we have hope for the future, and by that I mean uh, for the present life and for the life to come, 
but we also understand that something good can come out of our present situation. God never wastes the pain of his people. I have a friend who was recently diagnosed uh, with young onset Parkinson's disease. Uh, On average, people with Parkinson's are diagnosed at the age of about 60. Um, uh, My friend Carl, he is about my age. Uh, He's a Baptist minister. Uh, He's got quite a high-profile ministry in the UK. Uh, Wonderful family. And then he gets this bombshell dropped on him. It started with a few symptoms which he dismissed. Those symptoms got progressively worse, and eventually he found out that he has Parkinson's. When he got the diagnosis, he wasn't dancing for joy, saying, this is great, I've got this trial to contend with, this is what I've always needed. It was devastating news for him and his family. But he's not been crippled by despair either. He's hopeful. He's positive. He's focused on ministry. His life aim is the same as it's always been, to bring as many people as possible to Jesus. He's even planning on running a marathon, which is not an easy thing to do with Parkinson's. It's not an easy thing to do anyway. And now that he's been diagnosed with Parkinson's, because he's got a media platform and a decent uh, uh, following on social media, he's using that to talk about his experiences because he believes that it will help others who are going through similar trials. So in the midst of a very difficult time, God has actually given him a whole new ministry because he's open to that. In his most recent uh, post on Facebook, he said this, and I'm just picking a couple of sound bites, but he said, I'm feeling on the front foot of God's purposes for my life. I'm going at it. I'm feeling good. I'm hopeful for the future. I have no fear. Pray that I have joy and strength in the fight. This is a man going through a trial who knows the joy of the Lord. He knows it's going to be hard on him and on his family, but he can see that God is working in and through this terrible situation. This trial is not only revealing his character and Christian maturity, but God is using it to move him even further along this continuum of spiritual growth. I mean, if we look back over the course of our lives, how much of our personal and spiritual growth has come out of ease and comfort? And how much has come out of hardship and difficulty? A bishop in England once said to me, perfect parents make children that can't cope. Imagine there was a child who had the perfect upbringing. His parents were able to protect him from everything never fell over and grazed his knees, never fell off his bike. His football team always won. He was always winning, never losing. No one ever raised their voice in his presence. In short, he lived an idyllic existence. And then one day, upon reaching his 18th birthday, he had to go out into the world and fend for himself. How do you think he would do? Would he be a positive force for good in the world? I somehow doubt it. Or let us think of our own lives. Imagine that we won the lottery at the age of 20. And if you're not yet 20, you need a bit more imagination. And probably some one or two people thinking, we didn't have the lottery when I was 20, but I looked this up 
and the first lottery in Australia was in 1849, and there's no one in this church that old. So uh, let's just say you played the lottery at 20 and won this huge, life-changing sum of money. You never had to work again, never wanted for anything, life was easy, no major trials or difficulties of any kind. If that were true, do you think that you would be the person who you are today? Of course not. You wouldn't be half the person you are today. Of course, trials can break people, embitter them, cause them to become less than they were before. But for those who have put their trust in Jesus, that need not be the case. And someone will say, well, what about a Christian who's had a complete breakdown? What would you say to the person who is in a state of complete despair, depression, and anguish? I would say, take courage. The Lord is not finished with you yet. Sometimes persevering means hanging on by a thread. But you know, if you meet someone who's a mature and godly Christian, you can be absolutely sure that that person didn't suddenly just wake up like that one morning. Behind every mature Christian, there will be a certain amount of pain, heartache, suffering, hardship, and perseverance in the face of it all. That is life. James makes it clear that trials are inevitable. He doesn't say, if you face trials. He says, when you face trials of many kinds. Being a Christian doesn't make us immune to the trials of life. In fact, in James, James's context, uh, being a Christian would almost certainly have increased the trials, as it still does today for many persecuted Christians around the world. Trials will come. And when they do, we have a choice. Will our trials make us bitter or better? Even though we might know this stuff, it's not always easy to live it out, is it? You know, a trial comes and it flattens us and we feel devastated or depressed or fearful or anxious or angry because we're human and stuff affects us. And I think James anticipates this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Because of the context, I don't think James is talking about wisdom in general. I don't think he's just suddenly uh, gone off piste and changed the subject. I think he's talking about the wisdom to know that the Lord can and work through, can and will work through this difficult situation, no matter what it is. The wisdom to keep on trusting, despite of what's happening around us. The wisdom to seek the Lord and try and understand how our circumstances can actually be an opportunity for growth. And the wisdom to know that the Lord doesn't cause bad things to happen to us, but he can bring some good out of it. In fact, uh, God can bring limitless good out of almost anything. You see, the wisdom, the peace, and the deep joy that I've been describing are all works of the Holy Spirit. And if we truly long for God's Spirit and we ask God to fill us with his Spirit, he will do. Jesus said, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? 
Oh, can I have eggs for breakfast, Dad? Yeah, here you go. Scorpions. Who does that? No one. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? When we feel that we're being crushed by our trials, there is help available. We just have to ask for it. But then James says this, he says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And uh, you might be thinking, well, that's harsh. That sets the bar unachievably high. Everyone has doubts from time to time. Isn't it normal for a person's faith to go up and down a little bit? Well, yes, it is, but that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about the kind of doubt which says, I'm not sure if this Christianity thing is true, but I'm going to hedge my bets. I'll say a prayer and, and you know, maybe it will do something. Or the person who is blown around by the wind, one day they might try Christianity, the next day Buddhism, the day after that Baha'i. James says that such people are double-minded. In other words, they haven't given their allegiance to Jesus. They're all over the place. A lot of people try and live with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. It can't be done. It can't be done. I might say that I'm a Christian, but if I live as if this world is all there is, and if in practice I put my trust in my health and my wealth and my ability then you could say that my doubts had prevented me from ever truly putting my trust in Jesus. As Jesus said, we cannot serve two masters. You can't vote liberal and labor in the same general election. Uh, The ashes are on at the moment. I I wish I didn't have to mention it. I wrote this a little while ago. Uh, England aren't doing as well as that. I thought this might be an opportunity to gloat, but it's not. (laughs) Anyway, the ashes are on at the moment. And I'm pretty sure that Ben Stokes can't go out and bat for England and then straight away go and bat for Australia, much as Australia would love him to. We have to choose a side. Either we belong to Jesus or we belong to the world. We have, we, if we haven't given our allegiance to Jesus, we shouldn't expect anything from him. We all face trials. Uh, You might be in the middle of one right now. You might feel that your faith is being tested. And that's okay because real faith is tested. But if you allow him to, the Lord will continue to work out his purposes in your life and help you to become the person that you've been created to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a very difficult thing for us to digest, that we can be joyful in the face of trials. And this is coming from a church that uh, was starving and impoverished and persecuted. Father, help us to recognize that what we have in you is of such great value that no matter what's happening in our lives, we can be joyful. Because we know that ultimately you will never let us down. We thank you that your promises are true and real and steadfast. 
And we pray, Father, that in every situation, we will look to you to shape us and mold us and help us to become the people that you have created us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.